Steve Jackson Games for Nordcast, episode 1, July 12th, 2006. Welcome fellow tools of the conspiracy to the very first Fenordcast. Coming up, we talk to Ken Hyde about origins and dubious shards, Dr. Krom fresh back from Brazil and the convention that no one can pronounce, and Warehouse 23 with a shameless plug. But first, as some of you know, Steve does a yearly report to the stakeholders. It's an honest discussion of the company, all the good, the bad, and the ugly, plus his take on the hobby as a whole. We kick this episode off with an audio version of his recently released 2005 report. Here's Steve. Steve Jackson Games Incorporated has a single stockholder. Me. But we have a great many stakeholders, uh, people who have a stake in the success of the business. These include our employees, our distributors, the retailers who carry our line, and, of course, the people who play our games. Less obvious stakeholders, but very real, are the creative talents who produce our games, the printers who create the finished product, and the convention organizers who depend on us for game programming, prizes, and so on. We try to stay in good communication with all our stakeholders. The main avenues of communication are our website, the catalogs and other marketing material that we distribute, and the quarterly letter that goes to the 100-plus people and companies to whom we pay royalties. But for the past couple of years, I have written a report, not unlike the report to the stockholders, that you would expect from a public company. It was a useful exercise for me, and I got a surprising amount of favorable feedback from all levels of the hobby, so I'm going to continue. Note that, unlike a typical stockholder report, this does not strictly start and finish with the calendar year 2005. I didn't even start writing this year until the books were closed on 2005, and once I started, I covered developments through mid-June. It was delayed longer than intended this year. Game writing and company management come first. We are, as I assume you know, a publisher of games. Not all of these are physical products. A number of them are digital downloads, PDFs, and a few other types of files sold through our E23 site. An online game, UltraCore, went through a successful alpha test last year. It's almost ready for a short beta, and we hope it'll launch soon. We also publish two online magazines, Pyramid and the Journal of the Traveler's Aid Society. We've been in business since 1980. We employ, at the moment, 16 full-time staff, and we're interviewing for a couple more, plus a number of contractors and part-time personnel. Our 2005 gross was approximately $2.4 million, down 13% from 2004. As expected, we showed a loss for the year because of our big move. More on that later. Some of this was direct moving expenses. Some was because the move took time away from release of new products. And some was because, like last year, we wrote off some inventory rather than move it. Our cash flow was still positive, and our fiscal health is good. Right now, 2006 looks like it will be a solid but not amazing year. Our most important products continue to be the GURPS role-playing books, with more than 100 titles in print, and the Munchkin card game. With its sequels and supplements, Munchkin accounted for over 40% of our sales in 2005 and appeared in more translations. By the end of the year, it should be available in nine languages. The biggest... 2005 change was, of course, our move to new facilities. This was a big win in a class all its own. 
Our old offices were crowded and spartan. The building was at least 40 years old. The roof leaked. The driveway was unpaved. The best thing that can be said about it was that the wildflowers were beautiful in the spring. After months of searching, we found a three-year-old building with a large separate warehouse that met almost every requirement we had ever come up with. Amazingly, it was less than two miles from the old site, simplifying the move enormously. By the end of December, we were moved. Even now, in June, we're still unpacking boxes in the new place, but it's already home. And we have wildflowers here, too. And Austin is, once again, our only base. In early 2005, we moved our main warehousing from our Las Vegas facility to a contract arrangement with PSI in Georgia. We kept our assembly operations in Las Vegas at the time, but we have now closed the Vegas division completely. Much of our assembly is now being done at the printers, and the rest will, for now, be done in Austin, since we have the room. 2005 brought us some big wins, though none as big as the new building. Sales were off about 13% from 2004, which had been the best sales year in a decade. This seems directly due to our completing and shipping fewer products, which was an expected consequence of the move. Not that we're happy about lower sales, of course, but it was expected. A bright spot was the near doubling of licensing income, though it needs to double a couple more times to become really significant. Our digital product division, E23, has been in operation for more than a year now. Sales continue to grow. Our original goal was to offer 1,000 files for download by the end of 2005. As of mid-2006, we have not reached that goal, which is disappointing. At this writing, we have 932. But we are continuing to create original releases for E23 and to contract with more third-party publishers of quality PDFs. Last year, I said something that we've changed a little bit. I said... One thing you will not see in E23 is PDF versions of our new GURPS books. We know that some publishers are issuing their new books simultaneously in hard copy and PDF. We are concerned about the effect that this will have on the retailers, and unless something happens to remove that concern, our hardbacks won't be available in PDF. Well, over the last year, we saw continued fan interest in buying the new releases in PDFs, and retailers did not report any drastic bad effects from the availability of other publishers' products in both PDF and hard copy. So we compromised. For now, at least, the GURPS Basic set will remain available in hard copy only, but other GURPS hardbacks will be released in PDF three months after they are available in stores. We may tighten or loosen this policy further as time goes on and the market sorts itself out. The fourth edition of GURPS was launched at Gen Con 2004. We have continued to support it. Our original plan, to release a hardback book every month, proved to be excessive. It takes a lot of creative and production effort to complete a large hardback, and staff turnover made this impossible. However, before our angst could become too deep, the fans let us know that they'd rather see one about every two months anyway. So that's what we're doing. We're happy with the quality of the releases so far and pleased with the state of the pipeline for the next year. And Wiley Publishing released GURPS for Dummies in early 2006. This is only the second Dummies book to be released for our hobby, and we all thought that it was a very neat thing. Our online store, Warehouse 23, remains a success story. We are the exclusive online retailer for several high-quality publishers, including Atlas Games and Grey Ghost Press. Our customer service continues to be a point of personal pride for me. 
Our new facilities will allow us to increase the variety of products we sell. Our business organization improved over 2005 and 2006, but it had a way to go. I did get some time away from corporate management, which was a victory. By closing the Las Vegas facility completely, we saved not only money, rent, and several full-time positions, but also a lot of our controller's time. Our financials are now up to date. And the old building was a constant source of business problems and management distractions for me and for others. We don't miss those at all. Now, in some areas, we worked hard and made progress, but not enough. We continue to work on the UltraCore online game project. It has gone more slowly than intended. Among other things, we decided to re-implement the game completely in Perl. The original code had proved very difficult to modify. It was written for a Microsoft commercial server that is no longer supported. So, progress has not been as quick as we had hoped. As of this writing, we are not yet offering subscriptions. But we have made the game run a lot better and added a number of new features. We're drawing closer to a real launch date, and after that we'll just let the fans tell us whether we have a viable product. In the absolute worst case, UltraCore has been a valuable learning experience as we move too slowly toward digital games. We have still, much to my personal frustration, neither released a homegrown digital version of one of our products, nor entered a licensing relationship with a major publisher. But we have not given up. We're simply forcing ourselves to prioritize our successful hard copy sales first. The great success of the GURPS Character Assistant, both as a physical product and as a download, is encouraging, but that is a game aid, not a game. We are still actively seeking partners among the major console and PC publishers, as well as among wireless, that is, phone, game publishers. The first priority remains to implement some of the existing products in our catalog, but I'm excited about the chance to do new designs for the digital media. And some areas were disappointments, requiring us to try, try again, or to abandon efforts that we had had hopes for. I am sorry to report that 2005 and 2006 brought continued staff turnover. In a couple of instances, we interviewed long and hard and ended up hiring talented people who, for one reason or another, didn't stay with us. This is always frustrating. Not quite in the same category was Stephen Sopko's tenure as chief operating officer. Steve is both a game fan and a high-powered Fortune 500 exec who had been informally advising me for years. He was ready to leave Dell, and anyone who's been reading these reports knows that I would like to have someone else managing the company, so I could design more games. So, for several months in 2005, Steve was that person. He held the fort day-to-day during the time when we were hunting for our new site and moving into it. As a result, I not only retained my sanity, but was able to turn in several completed products in a relatively short time. This was a big win. However, the business plan under which we brought Steve on board assumed that we'd be able to place at least one major digital game license in order to cover the significant expense of Fortune 500-level talent. This didn't work out, so I had to resume the helm, but we all learned a lot from Steve, and the break did me good. But on the whole, our staff is smaller and less experienced than it has been for years. The new guys show great promise, but right now we are looking forward to a little more stability. Two fan support programs languished badly, in part due to staff turnover issues that left no time for anything but shipping products. When GURPS Lite was released for 4th edition, we invited fans worldwide to translate it into their own languages. Over the next year, we had volunteers for nearly 30 languages. 
Unfortunately, fewer than a half dozen have finished as of this date. But they're volunteers. They work at their own speed. The more upsetting thing is that the work of some who did finish has been stalled in our production department in one case for almost a year. This is embarrassing. We really have to find the time to get those out. And we ended our formal Game Aids license program. The original idea was to encourage fans to create digital support for our games by offering a specific licensing procedure and quality control support. But our system proved to be a hindrance rather than a help to the fans who wanted to code game aids. We took too long to respond, and our attempts at professional QC just sucked the fun out of it for the fan creators. So, better late than never, we changed the program to Here are the guidelines for legal use of our trademarks and copyrights. Please follow them. Have fun. Okay, that's just the executive summary. You can read the full version on our online policy page. Now, state of the industry. The hobby or adventure game industry, not to be confused with the mass market game industry epitomized by Monopoly or the gaming industry that runs casinos, had a boring 2005. No big publishers or distributors closed their doors, nor did any major players enter the market. Card games remained popular, role-playing slumped badly, and European and European-styled board games continued to make inroads. Collectible card games are still big business, but most of them now belong more to the children's or anime market than to the adventure game hobby. A significant exception was Fantasy Flight's A Game of Thrones CCG, based on the George R. R. Martin novels, which combined a classic fantasy theme with actual gameplay and saw continued success through the year. The year's biggest hit in the hobby game industry was probably Alan Moon's Ticket to Ride, a train game with clean, simple mechanics. The publisher also made an online version available. For our part, we have continued to work with various hobby industry partners to achieve shared goals. These include PSI, which is now acting as our fulfillment agent, more distributors with whom we have flooring contracts, thus making it easier for retailers to get our products, several overseas publishers who are now creating translations of Munchkin releases on a regular basis, and a few who are translating other games, notably GURPS 4th Edition, Adventure Retail, which represents us at Origins, Gen Con, and other major conventions, and the growing number of publishers, small and large, who are distributing digital product through E23. We still believe this sort of cooperation is our future. Looking forward, we anticipate our 2006 revenues to be up a bit from 2005. Munchkin still seems to be growing, and we are selling more card games of other types. Role-playing is in a hobby-wide eclipse right now, but we'll continue to support our GURPS players with a half-dozen books a year. I'm working on a couple of bigger board games for which I have great hopes. Time is the big obstacle here. Bigger games require more development and more playtesting. We have more games in the development pipeline than at any time in the past few years, and several of them are unconventional. I don't promise any of them will be the next big thing for the whole hobby, but it's nice to be working on a few projects that break the mold. We hope, as always, for more projects in the digital domain as E23 and UltraCore grow and as other projects step into the spotlight. Thanks, as always, for your support. We're hanging in there, operating more efficiently in nicer offices and now set for a bit of growth. And I'll try not to make the next report quite so late. 
Hillary Clinton hides in the dumpster and delivers the skateboard. This is Paul Chapman. I'm the marketing director for Steve Jackson Games, and I'm on the line with Sean Punch, GURPS line editor, also known as Dr. Crom. Recently, our favorite GURPS line editor returned from Brazil. Uh, what were you doing in Brazil, Sean? I was at the Uncontro International RPG, which is a big convention, a really big convention, the biggest in Brazil, biggest in South America, one of the bigger ones in the world, actually, as a guest of Devere Livraria, who uh, published the Portuguese translation of many SJ Games products, including GURPS. I, my official reason to be there was to sign the characters book they translated, but uh, the translation didn't happen in time, owing to the sorts of things that, as publishers, we're all too familiar with, so... I signed a lot of copies of Portuguese Grips Light and met the fans. That was my ultimate uh, my ultimate activity there, although it was my original target. So it's the biggest convention in Brazil. You've been to Gen Con many times. How do the two conventions compare? Well, uh, there's lots of ways I could compare them. What goes on, how big they are, uh, who's there. I'll give you a little bit of each, and you can just stop me if I'm starting to run crazy and <laughs> talk and talk and talk, but the first thing is the size, I guess the first thing you notice when you show up at any convention, and this one didn't seem as big as Gen Con, but actually in attendance was very much comparable. The reason it didn't seem as big was largely because the facility was uh, more broken up in a smaller area, so at any one time you didn't see all the people, but that didn't mean that they weren't there. There were actually quite a few of them. As for what goes on there, um, well, it's a lot more gaming and a lot less retail. Uh, this is to be somewhat expected. Uh, somewhat expected outcome uh, of a single publisher being the main backer that would be Devere, since they're not going to invite every single competitor in the world to come sit there and compete with them. But at the same token, they do invite anyone who cares to show up to come. And the focus isn't on the booths, the various exhibitors, and buying products and trading products and so on. The, bo- uh, the, the booths are there, but they're not the busy area of the convention. The busy area of the convention is the gaming area, and there's a lot of gaming. People really get into the games there. Um, and unlike, say, a big North American con like Gen Con Origins, the gaming is more flexible. People show up with the intent to run a game, they register the game right there at the site, and then people sign up to play the game. It's kind of like open gaming with mandatory registration. It's not the same as selling tickets in advance to play, you know, to get, play games that have been scheduled weeks, months, even a year in uh, beforehand. Um, and there's also a lot more costumes and evidence. All in all, I think it's uh, more social, more, a more social event than it, than anything else. Far more of a social event than a major gaming con might be in the U.S. I couldn't compare other countries, of course. And as for who's there, well, uh, a lot of gamers, of course. Not so many exhibitors, uh, people of this kind, actually... The balance is very much pro-gamer, I would say. In fact, aside from DeVere and their volunteers and staff, almost everyone there was a gamer. And unlike uh, an American show, the demographics were both younger and more balanced between the sexes. I'd say at an American show, while I see kids and I see uh, teenagers, I also see a lot of people who are my age, and I'm, we could say, a little over the hill, and a lot of people in between. Um, Whereas at... uh, event I went to in Brazil, wow, I mean, people started a little older than in America, you didn't see too many really young kids, but they didn't, they, there weren't a whole lot of really old looking guys like me there, not a whole lot of gray hair and evidence either, all, all told the crowd was younger, and a lot more 
a lot more girls, a lot more young ladies, a lot more women, a lot, a lot better balance between the sexes. You know, Gen Con, there's the joke that uh, basically everyone's a guy, <laughs> and 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 you're going to look around and see only guys, and therefore guys do guy things, and it's a very stereotypical guy event. Not not so this convention. There were I'd say maybe 60, 40, or even 55, 45 men men to women there. Which meant it was a different environment altogether, uh, for a lot of reasons that are hard to put your finger on. Just a more balanced crowd means people behave differently. I, I'd say actually they behave in a more social fashion, and you can take that in, a, in a, every possible way. So, younger gamers, more balanced. Uh, does that change the way that games are run? Well, I don't know for sure because I didn't sit down and play games. This is largely a lang- language barrier issue. I don't speak Portuguese. Speak, you know beyond hello, goodbye, and thank you, uh, all of which I learned while I was in Brazil. So sitting down at a table to play games wasn't going to happen. But I observed games. I talked to gamers who did speak English. I talked to people who could talk to the gamers for me, and I made friends with some gamers, hung out a lot. And what I learned was that people down there run games more, again, it's like the convention. It's more of a social activity. People aren't uh, so much playing the games because they want to be rules lawyers creating the ultimate character build and get the most powerful character at the end and maybe wipe out their friends along the way, which you see a lot in American gaming, like it or not. I mean, we all see it. And uh, people are more interested in getting into their character, playing mostly to be with their friends, a lot of jokes breaking up the gameplay, a lot of good-natured fun. You clearly see people smiling and laughing a lot. Uh, people often wear a costume has to do with their character to a convention. I doubt very much they do this at home, but at a con, sure. More than I'd see at, say, a big U.S. convention. And fighting plays a smaller role. People still have lots of combat, don't get me wrong, but combat isn't everything. A lot of the adventures uh, don't focus on all fighting all the time. And actually, some of the big uh, events down there, I was told by the organizers, aren't combat-oriented at all. They're closer to treasure hunts or simply just role-playing challenges. And... All this sort of comes together to create a, I would say, a, a fairly different feeling uh, when you watch the games and probably when you play them. But like I said, I didn't get a chance, which is too bad. Maybe some future date, if I learn the language, I could, I could try it. But right now, that's all I can tell you. Okay. Thank you very much, Sean. And all you Dr. Crom fans out there, he'll be a frequent guest to the Fenordcast, giving us peeks into his lab to see what's cooking for the future of GURPS and tips and hints to running your GURPS campaigns. Nelson Mandela must take the slimy tuba from my backyard. Hi, I'm Shad Lynn. I am the all-powerful Warehouse 23 manager, and this is a shameless plug. Today, I want to talk about a game that I've played more than a few times. That game would be Lunch Money by Atlas Games. This is one of my favorite card games of all time. I think primarily because I like seeing little girls beat each other up in humiliating ways. For those who might not be familiar with the game, the premise is a group of Catholic schoolgirls beating each other up for lunch money. It's about what you would expect, uh, the normal mix of weapons, moves, avoidance techniques, and just strange specials, such as the ever-popular humiliation, where you get to describe the horrific thing you are doing to embarrass the other player. The art is extremely stylized and is one of my favorite features. I love the images of a small girl screaming, throwing punches, 
and in other ways simply demolishing her opponent. Each card contains the name of the attack and a quote. The quotes contain such memorable lines as Jesus hates you and so do I and look at me while I'm hitting you. The one hit and the only hit I can really make against the game is I do wish the descriptions of the specials were on the cards. But once you get into it, it's not that hard to remember how they fit together. You just have to get sort of into the groove of it. I will admit that this is a game that cries out for a fun group to play it with. If you aren't screaming your attacks, coming up with the most derogatory things you can think of when you humiliate someone, or otherwise getting into the mood of the game, you aren't playing it right. As if that weren't enough to make you want to play this game, it has both an add-on pack, Sticks and Stones, and a sequel called Beer Money, in which the same little girl came back all grown up to do the photographs. In case you hadn't guessed, this game is available from Warehouse 23. It is, in fact, made by one of our direct mail partners, Atlas Games. If the concept of little girls beating the life out of each other doesn't make you want to play this game, it's probably not the game for you. But if that sounds just the strangest bit fun to you, you want to buy lunch money now. The volleyball from Alpha Complex will go to Kabul. I'm Paul Chapman. I'm here with Ken Height, and we are discussing his new book, Dubious Shards. So, Ken, how is it that you came to work with Ronan Arts and produce this book? Well, uh, Trey uh, Riley at Gamma uh, came up with the idea of having an exclusive book available at uh, Origins for attendees and asked me if I would write it, and I said, sure. I uh, came up with the idea of doing a Cthulhu Mythos-themed book because I knew I could uh, put together a lot of Cthulhu Mythos content in the relatively short deadline that uh, she uh, wanted. So I then realized that I didn't have the uh, chops to lay it out and make it look nice, so I went to Phil Reed, who had laid out my suppressed transmission collections and had done a lot of other great work and was now basically king of the indie layout business. And I asked him if he'd be interested in doing the layout and whatnot production for Dubious Shards. And he was very excited about that and said that not only would he like to do that, he would like to release it as a PDF through Ronin Arts. And so we agreed that that would happen. So I busily put together some content for him to lay out and release. And it showed up at the show and hopefully has been selling well. When we opened Dubious Shards, what can we expect? Uh, classic high team goodness, or something new and unusual, or a little of both? Um, well, uh, some of it is very classic high team goodness, in that the core of it is a 1998 Delta Green adventure that I wrote for the Cult of Transcendence book, which is still in production. And Pagan Publishing was nice enough to let me use that as the core of the book. So there is about a 32-page scenario of paranoia and conspiracy in the heart of the thing. Wrapped around it are eight uh, essays of varying lengths and topics. Five of them are covering material that suppressed transmission readers will find familiar. There's an essay on Iram, on Dagon, Dunwich, Lovecraft, and on the vampires in the Shund House. And the other essays uh, one of them is my lengthy review of Michelle Welbeck's H.P. Lovecraft, Against the World, Against Life, 
which I think is an interesting examination of horror critically, and then a more direct critical examination of Call of Cthulhu called The Man Who Shot Joseph Kerwin on the thesis that Call of Cthulhu is the only or almost the only game worthy of critical examination. But to make that argument, you have to make the critical examination of it, which is what this piece begins to do. And the first piece is also brand new for the book. It's called The How of Haster. And instead of asking the question, what is the Cthulhu mythos, which has been asked and answered hundreds of times, it asks the question, how? How do you put the Cthulhu mythos together? How do you find it in the world around you, in legends, in science, in where Lovecraft found it? And how do you put it together for games or stories or whatever you're planning to insert the mythos into? And hopefully that bit of applied Yogg-Sothothery will uh, be useful to people who want to game in a mythos way but uh, don't know Lovecraft well enough or don't find uh, or find themselves kind of buffaloed by the vastness of the thing. And it hopefully gives some approaches that you can use. Excellent. And, well, speaking of critical analysis and critical acclaim, uh, we should note that last night you walked away with an Origins Award for your work on GURPS Infinite Worlds. Uh, so congratulations there. Um, anything in particular that you thought um, caught the eye of the Academy from Infinite Worlds? Uh, well, I hope that uh, when the Academy looked at it, they saw a book that took the best of the old GURPS time travel material and added a lot of very specific tools for building worlds to play in. I mean, that's my big contribution to the thing. The rest was pretty much uh, stuffing and sewing. And my big contribution was adding a method by which you can start to build your own infinite worlds. So hopefully they realized how hard that was and that that hadn't ever been done before in the time travel alternate history business. And that might have been, you know, what the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the uh, award. Uh, I think also they recognize that the fundamental core of the material, uh, both the old time travel material and Dave Pulver's reworking of it into the fourth edition core setting, I think that they must have recognized that that's just a, a really great adventure setting. And I think that that probably spoke through too. You are officially a guest of honor at Origins this year. So any impressions of the convention thus far? Well, um, attendance has seemed a little light. I haven't got final figures. I usually get those on Sunday from one of the organizers. But it seemed a little light to me, although I have to say that my panels have been very well attended, which is not always the case. Um, I've been on uh, several panels uh, on vampires, on gaming tips, on uh, uh, ethics in gaming, which was an interesting choice, and on uh, superheroic nemeses, and all of those had at, at least, uh, you know, 10 or so attendees, and the GM tips ones had considerably more than that. So I was very gratified to see that that happens, because a lot of times at the shows, uh, the seminars are just kind of stuck away in a back room, and uh, no one comes to hear. The panel outnumbers the audience. But at this show, uh, any lightness in attendance hasn't been coming over here. Uh, the other thing that has struck me is that Origins has really stopped being a place where companies debut new product. Uh, if you're going to debut the product in the summer, you're apparently not doing it at Origins anymore. I walked the whole hall. I don't think I saw a brand new role-playing game. There were some, a couple of companies had new role-playing supplements. Uh, for example, White Wolf had uh, my two new 
role-playing supplements, uh, mythologies for vampire, and secrets of the ruined temple for mage. Rush out and buy them now. <laughs> oh, we will, we will. Uh, but I did see a dearth of new uh, role-playing games, and I saw not a lot of new board games or card games. I'm, I'm sure there were some, but as compared to previous Origins, where you were really spoiled for choice, uh, this is not a show for debuting things anymore. It doesn't seem to be. I've noticed also that the numbers in the exhibit hall seem a little down. Uh, this is the fir my first year of actually being behind the booth, <laughs> on the retail side of the booth, <laughs> and I really expected to be completely swamped and overwhelmed, but I, I haven't been, and I hope I can chalk it up to my native uh, abilities as a retailer, but I don't think so. I think it's more likely uh, a, a lack of attendance. Um, any of the panels that you did uh, struck you as particularly interesting? You mentioned ethics and gaming. Um, any particular highlights of those? Uh, well, the GMing tips panels are, I think, the solid core of seminars at any game convention. I think any game convention can profit from having a, a, a seminar like that, assuming they've got a guest or a, or a long-time uh, popular GM who has learned from their previous mistakes and isn't just running the same Blackmore campaign that they've been running since 1975. But because uh, Robin Laws likes to say that all panels become the GMing tips panel regardless of how they start, so you might as well just cut out the middleman. And I certainly plugged uh, Robin's Laws for good game mastering, uh, available on E23. Uh, download it now as often as I could. Uh, note how seamlessly I could work it into even the most innocuous conversation. <laughs> but uh, the GMing tips panel is always a standard. It's fun to be on a vampire panel with Phil Brucato, who has a almost diametrically opposed aesthetic of vampirism than I do, but has almost as strong a historical and artistic understanding of vampirism as I do. So that's always a good challenge when you get someone like Phil, who is as good as you and completely uh, at variance with what you assume to be the natural way to think about things. Good, good exercise. And the ethics and gaming panel, which Phil was also on, was one that was kind of strange because I'm not sure why I was on it. I've never particularly done anything uh, unethical that I'm aware of in gaming, and I've certainly never gone out and told other people how their ethics should or shouldn't happen. Perhaps it's because I believe that a game that promotes an actual moral viewpoint is a braver, better game than one that simply waves its hands and avoids the whole question, like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, with assigned alignments and go on killing orcs. But the actual result of the panel was really uh, kind of an interesting batch of questions from people who obviously wanted to think about the, the topic. It wasn't one of the really well-attended panels, but the audience all seemed very interested and very concerned with how, what kind of ethical boundaries there are in gaming. And for someone like myself, who is generally of the opinion that that's why we call it a game, is so we don't have to worry about that, uh, it was very interesting to hear their perspectives and to kind of talk to them about what we thought we were doing as creators when we said, go ahead and play a murdering rapist, and if you call it a vampire, that's cool. Moving on to more general gaming, uh, how is your gaming life? Are you gaming regularly? What are you gaming? I have uh, run a game every Monday that I've been in town uh, since 1988. It's not always the same campaign, 
uh, but it's been a fairly cohesive group of players that has grown and waned as people have moved in to Chicago and left town and graduated and come back and everything else. Uh, I'm currently running a Hero Quest game set in London in 1755 during the great age of Garrick's Theatre uh, with Shakespearean dramaturgy replacing the Hero Quest rules so that rather than quest to the God's Plane to reenact a heroic myth, you're traveling to the Green Realm to reenact a Shakespeare play and by doing so changing the world. Uh, I think that Hero Quest was one of those games that when it comes along I finally find the mechanic to run the game I've always wanted to play. Same thing happened with Unknown Armies when it came along and I finally found the Tim Powers game I'd been waiting for for a decade. So when Hero Quest came along I finally had a Shakespearean dramaturgy game. So we're running that, we're enjoying it quite a bit. Uh, before that we were running Unknown Armies and before that I had a GURPS uh, space game. We may go back to GURPS for uh, the next game where we may do Everway or we may do the old uh, 1984 Jeff Grubb masterpiece, Marvel Superheroes, which for my money certainly is unsurpassed as an elegant design that answers virtually every problem with superhero gaming, even if the answer is don't ask stupid questions, just punch something. Without a doubt, the Marvel Superheroes game uh, and the Ultimate Powers book are the pinnacle of superhero role-playing development, without, without a doubt. Well, and thank that, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and no, no offense to Sean, but uh, thank you very much, Mr. Height, for uh, sitting down with the Fenord cast for a few minutes, and we greatly appreciate your time and opinions. Uh, thanks for having me, Paul, uh, as the inaugural or near-inaugural guest, and uh, I hope to sit down with you again at show after show after show until we're both heartily sick of the entire process. <laughs> That'll be a long time. And that, fellow Fenord fans, was episode one. Coming up in episode two, a sneak peek behind-the-scenes look at Munchkin Impossible, a discussion on the coolest things in the upcoming GURPS biotech, and much, much more. We do whatever the secret masters say. The Fenord cast is a production of Steve Jackson Games, our theme song by Tom Smith at TomSmithOnline.com. Excellent. There we go. I think that worked reasonably well. Oh, hold on.